The king stood barefoot in the freezing cold and snow. Tears streamed down his face as he begged for forgiveness. From inside Ganosa Castle, the Pope's heart was hard as the walls that barred the king's entry, and he had far more suffering to endure before either the Pope's heart or the walls of the castle would open to him. The king kneeled on the icy hilltop and prayed for absolution, as all around him a blizzard raged. The winter of 1076-1077 was brutally harsh. Heavy snow fell over the Alpine mountains, which separated the Kingdom of Germany from the Kingdom of Italy, and it blanketed frozen icy mountain passages. Only the most desperate would tempt fate by hazarding to travel across them. But Henry IV, King of Germany, was indeed desperate. The 26-year-old king was in danger of losing his throne, all because of some meddling old Italian, the good-for-nothing Ildebrando, or as the false monk had his followers call him, Pope Gregory VII. Henry knew who this man really was, an overzealous peasant, the son of a blacksmith, no true pope at all. This upstart had somehow gotten it into his thick head that he could command the king of Germany, Italy, and Burgundy, and rightful emperor of the Romans. Did this charlatan pope have any idea who he was dealing with? Henry's father and namesake, Henry III, had gotten rid of three popes in one year and appointed his own men to the office. And now it seemed his son would have to do the same once more. When Pope Gregory had threatened to excommunicate Henry, that had been the last straw. On January 24, 1076, at the Synod of Worms, Henry IV, backed by loyal followers, both secular and of the church, declared that Gregory's election as pope had been in fact a usurpation, and that he was to be removed from his position in Rome. When Pope Gregory got word of this denunciation, he responded in kind by excommunicating Henry and announcing that it was the king who was to be deposed, and that all the princes of Germany, Italy, and Burgundy were released from their oaths of allegiance to Henry. It seems Henry had misjudged his popularity. He had only barely defeated a rebellion in Saxony a year prior. And elsewhere in his realm, many other local rulers were eager to get out from under the king's rule. Throughout the year, support for Henry waned, and in the fall, at an assembly in the city of Trebor, a council of princes informed Henry that unless he could convince the Pope to lift the excommunication, they would elect a new king. They even invited Pope Gregory to come and weigh in on their choice. As the last leaves fell off the trees, and the first few flakes of snow began to cover the ground, Henry's boastful courage withered away. With a small group of his most loyal supporters, numbering no more than 50, including his wife and her attendants, Henry IV journeyed south to Italy. His way was blocked by his second cousin, La Gran Contessa, Matilde di Canossa, ruler of Tuscany and the most powerful figure in northern Italy. Matilde was also a close ally of Pope Gregory, and if you bought into the German king's propaganda, his lover. Suspicious of Henry's motivations, Matilde blocked off all passage south through the Alps, and took Gregory to the center of her domain, her most fortified castle, named for her family, Il Castello 
di Canosa. This fortress was built at the top of a hill and would have been quite a challenge to break through its thick walls. Henry was eventually able to bribe his way through the Alps, but the journey was not a task for the faint of heart. The harsh winter wind snapped at their faces and blinded them with flurries of snow. They were forced to scale a great mountain, and when they had finally reached the summit, there was an icy and treacherous path down awaiting them. The men clung to the shoulders of the native guys they had hired, and often fell and rolled down the mountainside, crawling on their hands and feet to avoid tumbling to their doom. The women, including Queen Bertha of Savoy, were wrapped in oxen hides and dragged down the slope by the guides. Many horses slipped and snapped their legs on the rocky crags, some instantly dying and others lumbering on with maimed limbs. But finally, on January 25th, 1077, Henry and his entourage arrived outside the gates of Canosa. He manifested no hostile intentions and instead pleaded to be allowed an audience with the Pope so that he might beg the pontiff's absolution. It now fell to Matilde and the other nobles present, both those aligned with the Pope and those the German king had brought with him, to convince Pope Gregory to forgive Henry. The Pope at first demanded that Henry step down as king to be absolved of his prideful sins. When Henry refused, Pope Gregory stated that Henry would have to prove his commitment to change by doing penance, though he left the manner of this penance vague. And so the young King Henry, dressed in simple animal skins and barefoot, stood outside the gate at Canossa Castle, begging forgiveness. As a relentless winter storm battered the walls of the imposing fortress and tormented Henry, he stood outside. Pope Gregory later said that those present were stunned by his refusal to let Henry enter and bring the king's suffering to an end. He himself admitted that there were those who felt Gregory's actions seemed to be heartless tyranny rather than chastening severity. Finally, after three days, Gregory allowed Henry to enter. The king agreed to submit to Pope Gregory in return for the lifting of his excommunication. He swore to never again impede Pope Gregory in any way, and instead to aid him to the best of his ability. Perhaps feeling rather smug, Pope Gregory then held a mass and gave communion to Henry, bringing him back into the flock. Afterwards, a dinner was held. No hard feelings after all. But the humiliated King Henry IV didn't even touch his food. In silence, he dug his fingernails into the table, gouging out the wood. The Pope might have won this battle, but if he thought the war was over, he had another thing coming. The would-be emperor was going to make damn sure of that. Welcome to History of the Ultramar, episode 2.2, Upon This Rock I Will Build My Church. Today we'll be delving into the history of the papacy, focusing on how this office came to be in the right place at the right time to kick off the First Crusade, and its complicated relationship with the various Roman emperors running around. So, what is a pope? 
Well, the Pope is the head of the Roman Catholic Church. This role as head is tied to his position as Bishop of Rome. See, Rome, as we've discussed before, is one of the five cities of the Pentarchy, along with Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Constantinople. These five cities have long held spiritual significance for Christians, for various reasons. Though the exact formulation of a specific Pentarchy, as in five cities, was something that developed during the Middle Ages. For much of early Christianity, it was really only Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria that were centers of authority. Jerusalem wasn't on the early list because although it was spiritually important, it was on the borders of the Roman Empire, and just not connected enough to wield a lot of power. Meanwhile, Antioch and Alexandria have historically been very important centers of culture and learning, and early Christianity developed in those great cities, so that's why they make the cut. Constantinople was the city founded by Constantine the Great and the main capital of the Christian Roman Empire, so it became important when Christianity became the official Roman religion. But why Rome? Well, there's a pragmatic answer. Rome was the old Roman capital and an important city, so it makes sense that as a major urban center, it would also be a center for Christians in the western provinces of the empire. But there's also a religious answer. According to Christian tradition, the first bishop of Rome was none other than Peter the Apostle, who was crucified in Rome by the emperor Nero. In Christian, particularly Roman Catholic tradition, Peter is accorded a special position among the apostles, known as Petrine Primacy. This is connected to a line in the Christian Bible that reads, And I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's the thing, though. The name Peter means rock. Well, kind of. So Peter's birth name was Simon, but then Jesus came and gave him a nickname in Aramaic. Aramaic is a term used to refer to various Semitic languages spoken primarily in Syria-Palestine. They're sometimes treated as dialects, sometimes as separate languages. It depends on the time and place. The Semitic language family, by the way, also includes Hebrew and Arabic. Varieties of Aramaic are still spoken in the Middle East today. They're also often called Syriac, and that's also the name used to refer to varieties of Aramaic during the medieval era. What is known as classical Syriac was and still is the liturgical language of many Christians in Syria-Palestine. Now, Jesus and the other apostles were speakers of Aramaic, probably alongside Greek, which, as we've discussed, was the primary lingua franca in the Eastern Roman Empire, and also the original language of the New Testament, specifically a variety known as Koine Greek. So Jesus gave his buddy Simon a nickname in Aramaic, Kepha. Kepha apparently means rock or stone. Now, I'm really glossing over a lot of complexity here and how all this can be interpreted. Not to mention the translation angle. As I mentioned, Jesus primarily spoke Aramaic, but the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. But this is the canonical version at least. Anyway... So when Jesus says, thou art Peter, in Aramaic, he would have been saying, you are rock. And then, on this rock, I'm going to build a church. Right? So it's a play on words. And that line is what gives Peter his primacy. Because it's Jesus, you know, son of God, saying, you are the foundation of what will become the Christian church. And then Peter goes and dies in Rome. And that's presumably where his body is. So that's where the foundation of the Christian church rests. 
Oh, and the name Peter in English, by the way, comes from the Greek translation of kepha. See, in Greek, petra means rock or stone, like in petrify, to turn to stone. But the problem is, petra is a feminine noun, and Peter's a guy, so we gotta give him a man's name. So Greek speakers just added a masculine ending, turning it into petros. It was actually pretty common for linguistic minorities in the Roman Empire, particularly in the East, to have a Romanized version of their name, probably in Greek. So during his lifetime, Peter would have been known as both Kepha in Aramaic circles and Petros in Greek circles. That goes through Latin as Petrus and into English, eventually becoming modern English Peter. In Catholic tradition, from Peter, who's the foundation of the church and was the first bishop of Rome, up to the current bishop of Rome, Francis, there's a line of succession as the core of the Christian church. The rock that Jesus built his whole thing on. And that's why the Pope matters. The term Pope actually also comes from Greek. Papas, which means Papa, you know, father. It was a general Greek term for priests, much as father still is in English. And this version was just fossilized as a term for only the Bishop of Rome. I guess he liked it when folks called him Big Papas. Anyway, the early history of the Bishop of Rome is a bit murky. Like I said, there's supposedly a direct line of succession from Peter down to Francis, but especially in the pre-Constantine era, it's hard to work out what exactly was going on. So let's just fast forward a bit to the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the so-called Dark Ages. At this point, we start to have a bit of a divergence because the Roman Empire is still around in the East. And yeah, the patriarchs are cool and all that, but it's really the emperor in Constantinople who's the ruler of all Christians in the East and in the West. Think back to, for example, episode 1.16 and how Alexios Komnenos began to take an active role in the church becoming the template for what will come to be known as the Epistemonarches, the regulator of the church. This imperial meddling in the church was not unknown to the Romans. The emperor was expected to be not only a secular ruler, but a powerful figure within the religious sphere. Think back even to the last episode, when we discussed the Council of Nicaea. This church council was organized by the Roman emperor Constantine. It was impossible to separate the church and the state. You can see the evolution of this model in the Caliph. A figure like Al-Hakim, for example, was expected to be both a religious and a secular head, all in one. And in both the Roman and Arab worlds, the emperor and the Caliph had a universality to their rule that was essential to political ideology. When they entered into arrangements with other states, there was an expectation that the foreigners swear oaths to the emperor and accept his obvious superiority. Both the treaty and marriage alliance that Mikhail Luca signed with Robert Giscar of the Normans and the treaty that Alexios Komnenos later signed with the Venetians against Robert Giscar contained lines that referenced submission to the Roman emperor. The same was true of treaties signed with the Rus or with the Pechenegs. Dealing with the Caliph was also tricky because both of these rulers had a universal, sacred role. But they were able to work out an ideological compromise a 10th century letter from the Patriarch of Constantinople to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad stated that the Caliph and the Roman Emperor were, quote, brothers superior to and preferred above their brethren. They ruled as twin universal rulers. The Roman Emperor reigned in the oikumenos, the world or universe, but really just the Christian bit. 
as I mentioned last time, that's the source of the word ecumenical. And the caliph ruled in the Dar al-Islam, the abode of Islam. Later, during the 10th and 11th centuries, as ties increased with the Fatimid Caliphate, there were also concessions made on both sides to symbolize this dual universality. Now established between Constantinople and Cairo, instead of Baghdad. The Qutbah, or Friday prayers, in the mosque in Constantinople were said in the name of the Fatimid Caliph. And in return, the Roman Emperor was allowed to rebuild the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. This was key because it was a demonstration that showed the emperor was still the protector of all Christians, even those in Muslim territory. But there were two figures for whom no amount of ideological gymnastics was going to reconcile competing claims to universality. Two figures who would also use ties to Jerusalem to cement their own supremacy. The stars of our opening today, the Holy Roman Emperor of the Germans and the Pope. Let's start with the Kaiser der Römer. To understand the German emperor, we need to talk a bit more about the Frankish one first, Charlemagne. After all, the later Holy Roman emperors saw themselves as continuations of what Charlemagne had started. So famously, Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Romans by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day in the year 800. As quote-unquote Roman emperor, Charlemagne was positioning himself as inheritor of the Christian Empire of old, a very similar universal role to that of the actual Emperor of the Romans in Constantinople, and one which included dominion over Jerusalem and the rest of the Holy Land. But of course, it was quite difficult to negotiate actual possession of the Holy Land when it was in the hands of the Caliph, at that time the great Abbasid Caliph, Harun al-Rashid, Not to mention the complications of being Roman Emperor when there was still a Roman Emperor in Constantinople. But conceptually speaking at least, there were ways around all that. In Imaginative Possession, Charlemagne in the East, from Einhard to the Voyage of Charlemagne, historian Anne Austin Latowski quotes Charlemagne's historian, Einhard, saying, With King Harun of Persia, who ruled almost all of the Orient except India, he was on such friendly terms that Harun preferred Charles' goodwill to the friendship of all other kings and potentates on earth, and considered Charles alone worthy of his respect and homage. At one time, the king of the Franks sent messengers with offerings to the most holy sepulchre, the site of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. When they appeared before Harun to relay their master's wishes, the king not only permitted them to carry out their mission, but also gave Charles the jurisdiction over this holy and blessed place. On their return, Harun sent along his own messengers with precious gifts, garments, spices, and other riches of the Orient. A few years earlier, Charles had asked him for an elephant, and Harun had sent him the one he owned. At that time, the emperors in Constantinople, Nikephoros, Michael, and Leo, were seeking his friendship and alliance of their own accord, and sent many ambassadors to him. When he assumed the name of emperor, however, They feared that he wished to snatch territory away from them. Thus, a very firm pact was established so that no opportunity might remain for any sort of problem between the regions. For the power of the Franks was always suspect to the Romans and the Greeks. Whence that famous Greek proverb arose, Have a Frank as a friend, not a neighbor. End quote. Einhard actually wrote that Greek proverb down in actual Greek for added authenticity. The rest of the text is originally in Latin, of course. 
You could also translate the quote as, if you have a Frank as a friend, it's because he's not your neighbor. Einhard's probably referring to, in order of their reign, the Byzantine emperors Nikiforos I, Michael or Mikhail I, and Leo or Leon V, the Armenian. Mikhail I did in fact recognize Charlemagne as emperor, not as emperor of the Romans, but as Imperator Francorum, emperor of the Franks. And Einhard bends the truth in other areas as well. The gifts from Harun al-Rashid are also mentioned in Einhard's main source, the Royal Frankish Annals. But in the Annals, some of the gifts mentioned come not from the Caliph, but from the Patriarch of Jerusalem. And then, Charlemagne's patronage of the Church is a return gift to the Patriarch. Einhard warps things to focus on the relationship between Charlemagne and the Caliph. This relationship was a key part of Charlemagne's image. As Latowski later explains, quote, Both Einhard and the authors of the Royal Frankish Annals referred to Caliph Harun al-Rashid as Rex Persarum. This is likely a careful juxtaposition designed to imply a notion of parallel empires, with the struggle of Carolingian and Abbasid continuing the great Roman-Persian rivalry. Einhard also portrays the Caliph bestowing many gifts on Charlemagne, and even adds an exotic animal, the famous elephant. However historical these exchanges may be, for our purposes, the importance of rhetorical styling and deliberate allusion to a recognizable commonplace takes precedence over historical accuracy. Einhard sought to place Charles in the lineage of Roman emperors, namely that of Constantine. With Harun as king of the Persians and Charlemagne emperor of the Romans, their exchange assumes the ancient epic proportions of the Roman imperial centuries. Einhard was the only Carolingian writer to allude to any sort of dominion over the Holy Lands for Charlemagne, and the allusion is murky at best. The wording offers meager clarification to what he meant by Harun's concession of the holy places, and the Greeks agreeing to a treaty to keep him from invading. Harun grants Charles unnamed requests, and then grants an unspecified kind of dominion over a holy and sacred place. Some have proposed that persistent misreading of Einhard and the Annals led to the belief that Charlemagne had actually held some sort of tenure over the Holy Land. There is no mention of the incident in the scant extant Arab sources, and scholars now concur that the story is a Western fabrication. One critic has noted that the belief that Harun al-Rashid had given some sort of protective rights over Jerusalem to Charlemagne persisted until the 20th century. End quote. This vision of Charlemagne as the ruler of a new Christian empire, the Frankish Empire, with a divine right to rule in the Holy Land, persisted, and was only further embellished. Obviously, in reality though, this image of a universal Christian Frankish empire lacked substance. Not that that was going to stop later generations from perceiving this bygone golden age of Charlemagne's as truly being one of universal Christian Frankish rule, and then attempting to position themselves as the continuation of the glorious Carolingian Empire of old. You know, make Frankia great again. And that's a good point to transition to discussion of the German emperors. As I mentioned last time, the Carolingian Empire was not particularly long-lived. It remained whole under Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious, but that's only because Louis was the only of Charlemagne's legal heirs to outlive their father. If Louis's siblings, apart from the women and the bastards, had survived a bit longer, the Carolingian Empire would have been divided amongst them. That was Frankish custom. But lucky Louis profited from the shorter lifespans of his brothers, and the empire remained whole under him. Eh, kind of. 
As Louis' sons began to reach adulthood, they started to act out. Louis tried to lay out clear succession plans, but it soon became clear that this was not going to be an easy transition. The problems were actually quite similar to those faced by the Great Seljuk Empire, which we discussed back in episode 1.14. How do you maintain unity when each heir wants their own piece of pie, and has their own independent source of legitimacy, which they can use to rustle up an army of their own? Answer? You don't. Civil wars, often triggered by Louis' changes to inheritance plans, plagued the last years of his reign, and they continued after his death. They finally came to an end with the Treaty of Verdun, signed in 843. The Treaty of Verdun created three separate kingdoms for three of Louis' sons. Charles the Bald received West Francia, which would later become France. Louis the German received East Francia, which would later become Germany. And lastly, Lothar, the eldest, who had originally been named his father's successor as emperor, retained nominal sovereignty over his brothers, but really only controlled Middle Francia, which developed into an entire mess that we don't have time to get into now. Really, the history of Middle Francia is basically all European wars and the world wars. We're not going to get into all that now. East and West Francia, though, would prove to be a bit more stable, in time at least, but not under Carolingian rule which had run its course by the end of the 9th century. The lack of a hegemonic dynasty meant that the division established at Verdun, half a century prior, became the roadmap for Europe moving forward. In West Francia, which retained the name Kingdom of the Franks, or France eventually, as I mentioned last time, the Capetians came to rule, though centralized power had more or less vanished in the region, and the Capetians, based in Paris, barely held any power outside of their home region. What would eventually become an actual kingdom of France was, in the 11th century, a patchwork of mostly independent dukes and other various landholding nobles. And it would be a long time before the king of the Franks was able to do anything more than wag his finger disapprovingly. In East Francia, centralized power remained a bit more present, at least for a while. But it shifted away from the Franks to the Saxons, who had once been the pagan punching bags of Carolingian Franks. Otto I, Duke of Saxony, was able to extend his control over not only East Francia, but the Kingdom of Italy, and to some degree over West Francia as well, which gave him the authority to get himself crowned Emperor of the Romans in 962. By that point, the title had actually been vacant for about four decades. This is usually marked as the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. Though Otto assumed and wanted everyone else to agree that he was just carrying on what Charlemagne had started, the conditions of this new German-based state were very different. However, some things were still the same. Assembly politics, for example, which we talked about last time, remained a key part of this new, new Roman Empire. And the role of emperor was elective, but it did stay in the family for three generations. Otto's son and grandson who succeeded him as emperor were also called Otto, so the dynasty is called the Ottonian dynasty, obviously. Eventually, though, Germany had had enough of Ottos, and the role of emperor passed to the Salian dynasty, who were female line heirs of the Ottonians. The first two Salians, Conrad and Henry III, were able to hold on to power, and they were able to get themselves crowned as emperor, just like the Ottonians had. But when Henry III died, the role of king passed to Henry IV, who was only around five years old, and during his minority, East Francia began to suffer from some of the same loss in centrality 
that had caused West Francia to crumble. When Henry grew up, he did his best to put it back together again, but he lacked either the talent or perhaps the opportunity to do so. Henry IV also lacked the support of a figure who'd been key for rule in Francia for centuries. The guy who'd been crowning all these Roman emperors. The Pope. As I mentioned last time, way back in 754, Pope Stephen II had anointed Pippin the Short as King of the Franks, providing the legitimacy needed to end centuries of Merovingian rule and starting the Carolingian era. Pope Stephen also marks the transition from a Byzantine Roman papacy to a Frankish papacy. Until the 8th century, popes had functioned much like other Roman patriarchs. The office of Bishop of Rome was subordinate to the Roman Emperor in Constantinople. Popes were basically representatives of the Roman Empire, and they were often of Greek ethnicity. Pope Stephen's immediate predecessor, Pope Zachary, was himself a Greek, and he was also the last pope to seek confirmation of his office from the Byzantine Emperor. He also sanctioned Pippin's de facto coup in Francia, though it was his successor who actually anointed the guy. Why the sudden change in loyalty, though? Well, the 8th century was a rough time for everyone, Byzantine Romans included. They were coming to terms with Arab conquests and beginning to develop that societal cabin fever we discussed way back in episode 1.3. They made the decision to basically cut the Pope out, as they needed to focus on centralized power emanating from Constantinople. This left the Bishop of Rome on his own to deal with the Germanic threat of the day, the Lombards. And so who did he turn to? That's right, the Franks. In 754, Stephen anointed Pippin, and just a few decades later, on Christmas Day in the year 800, Pope Leo III took it even farther, and just named a new Roman emperor, Charlemagne. This created a foundation for rule in Latin Christendom that would persist. The elites were now tied to not only the church, but the pope specifically. This went hand in hand with the religious focus of the Carolingian imperial project, which presented itself as moral correction of all the faults of the era. So while rulers were becoming more religious, religious heads were becoming more secular. When Pope Stephen agreed to anoint Pippin the Short, Pippin in return guaranteed that the Pope would be given dominion over a huge chunk of Italian territory that would one day become known as the Papal States. It's at this time that we also start to hear about a certain Donation of Constantine. The Donation of Constantine was an imperial decree from, who else, Constantine the Great, which confirmed not only the primacy of the Bishop of Rome over the patriarchs in Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, and Constantinople, but also control over the city of Rome and the rest of the Western Roman Empire. This document gave the Pope all he needed to make sure he was recognized as the supreme universal authority in the West. And it's also a big old fake. Yeah, Constantine didn't write this shit. It was probably cooked up in the 8th century. Possibly by someone in Pope Stephen's camp to justify papal dominion in the papal states, as well as the break with the Roman Emperor in Constantinople. You were never really my boss. Constantine gave me the job. And the donation of Constantine would also be cited by the papal legates who excommunicated the ecumenical patriarch Michael Carularios in 1054, that famous Great Schism. In fact, part of the problem was that Carularios was walking around calling himself ecumenical, universal patriarch, when he was in fact subordinate to the Pope. Look, here's a document from Constantine saying that the Pope is the best and he loves the Pope and everyone needs to listen to the Pope. You can't, you can't argue with that. Look at it. 
Look, look at, look at the paper. Look at what Constantine wrote. This desire to uphold papal primacy also colored how popes interacted with their new emperors. Remember, previously, Roman emperors had confirmed popes, and Byzantine Roman emperors received their right to rule directly from God, whereas Frankish Roman emperors had to be anointed by popes, who transmitted the right to rule, a right they could take away, theoretically at least. Let's talk about Pope Gregory and the Gregorian reform movement. Gregory represented the newest trend in papal primacy. Previous arrangements between popes and emperors had been much more like partnerships. I anoint you as king, you give me the papal states. And the Carolingian project had made the church basically a part of the state. Charlemagne, in the mold of Constantine calling the Council of Nicaea, saw it as his duty to weigh in on spiritual matters and ensure the morality of his empire. Even though this grew out of a partnership with him, it ended up, in many cases, sidelining the Pope. Despite the fact that he'd gotten his imperial title from him, Charlemagne clearly saw himself as less a puppet of the Bishop of Rome and more a ruler in the mold of Constantine, not only capable of dictating moral correctness, but obligated to do so. Though, the age of Charlemagne came to an end, and when centralized power faded in post-Carolingian Francia, the Pope was there to assure his own universality. During the 11th century, religious institutions like monasteries and figures like bishops became less tied to the secular state. The key example of this shift is the Abbey of Cluny, a Benedictine monastery founded by the Duke of Aquitaine in 910. Even though it had been founded by a secular figure, Cluny became the center of a monastic movement that instead of being loyal to an emperor or a king, was itself the ultimate authority. Foreshadowing the developments of the Roman Catholic Church, Cluny developed a hierarchy of subsidiary houses that came to dot the landscape of Western Europe. Because of its power, during the 11th century, Cluny was at the heart of the reform movement of the era. Now, like all eras, the late first millennium had its religious controversies. The two biggest ones were clerical marriage, which would eventually develop into the celibacy that Roman Catholic bishops and uh, other priests are still required to maintain. This was an interesting development, though, and associated with the need to avoid inheritance issues from priests with heirs. In Charlemagne's time, many of these roles had been appointed by the emperor, but in the less centralized Frankie of the 10th and 11th century, inheritance concerns became more important, and childless priests ensured that church leaders would be able to control the fate of church property. The second hot-button topic was simony. Or is it simony? Hold up, I'm, I'm, I'm going to check. Give me, give me one second. All right. Wiktionary simony. Okay. It's both. Okay, you can say simony or simony. Um, whatever you want, I guess. Come on. English? What are you doing? All right, anyway. Uh, simony, simony is defined as the selling of church offices. But you'd be surprised at how vague that definition is. It can be interpreted in many different ways. From looser interpretations, where it's only bad if the situation was shady in other ways. Just giving a gift to influence someone is okay, though. Or in more strict readings, the involvement of any lay figures in the appointment of bishops or popes. At their core, both 
simony-simony, and clerical celibacy were tied to the development of a church that stood apart from traditional political practices. In the eyes of reformers, the church should not have inheritance issues, and it should not suffer interference from kings or emperors. This merged with pre-existing ideas about papal supremacy to create a vision of a pope that was the true universal ruler, free from any imperial shackles. This obviously would eventually generate tension with both Roman emperors, but it's worth noting that it didn't start out that way. During the reign of the German emperor Henry III, the Cluny reform movement found support in the imperial court. When Henry III went down to Rome to get rid of three separate claimants to the office of Bishop of Rome, he placed his own man in the Lateran, Clement II. Interestingly, Henry deposed two of the would-be popes, but the third one, Gregory VI, was tried in a church synod and found guilty of simony. He himself freely admitted to having purchased the office of pope, but claimed that this act did not constitute simony. Gregory VI saw himself as a reformer. One of his protégés was a former Cluniac monk by the name of Ildebrando, who would later become Pope Gregory VII, taking the name in honor of his disgraced mentor, who he still saw as a rightful pope. And Gregory VII would end up giving his name to the entire reform movement, the Gregorian Reform. But it's not like the German Emperor Henry III was opposed to reform. After all, he invoked simony against Gregory VI. And even though he placed the papacy under his thumb, he would choose the next five popes, the third of his German popes was Leo IX, a reformer and fan of Cluny. Ildebrando was one of his key advisors. Leo IX is actually the first pope we met here on History of the Ultramar, back in episode 1.2. And his papacy was a sign of things to come. Leo was the pope who raised an army to battle the Normans in southern Italy. He ended up captured at Civitate in 1053 and held hostage by Robert Giscard's older brother, Humphrey of Oatville. Remember? Yeah, you remember. Pope Leo was the first pope to confirm the Normans' right to rule in southern Italy, though this confirmation was definitely made under some amount of duress. He was their hostage at the time. And Leo's also the one who sent his papal legates to Constantinople in 1054. And we know how that turned out. Leo IX was very much in line with both reform and the German emperor. There is a future in which the Gregorian reform ends up tied to the emperor, much like the Carolingian reform was. But that's not our future. The line of German popes came to an end in 1056, when the German emperor Henry III died leaving his five-year-old son, Henry IV, in charge. As I mentioned, during the minority of Henry IV, the wheels would come off this whole German Empire thing. Both Saxony and Northern Italy in particular would begin to slip out from the German imperial yoke. This is the period of time in which Pisa and Genoa really start to break away, for example. See episode 1.9. And it's also the period in which the Pope starts to slip away. The first pope to be chosen without imperial meddling was Pope Stephen IX, who'd actually been one of the legates that had excommunicated the Byzantine patriarch Carolarios in 1054. After Stephen's death, though, the papacy had a bit of a crisis. The next papal election, which we actually talked about back in episode 1.2, was kind of irregular, and Ildebrando, who was already becoming the face of the church reform movement and at the time was on a diplomatic mission to the imperial court in Germany, 
Well, he agreed that the election of the anti-pope, or false pope, Benedict X, was null and void. He, along with other reformers, backed Gerard of Burgundy, who took the name Nicholas II. But Nicholas had a problem. Benedict's position as pope was backed by the Roman nobility, and he was the guy in the big seat. Nicholas needed help if he was going to take his rightful place in the Lateran. Traditionally, the German king or emperor or whatever had stepped in at this point. But the imperial court was a bit of a mess. The actual king was a child, and though the Germans did back Nicholas, he needed some more stable firepower. Enter the Giscar. We saw this play out from the Norman side in episode 1.2. Well, this is the papal side. Nicholas enlisted the aid of everyone's favorite terrorists and secured his position in Rome. He also confirmed the Normans' right to rule as dukes in southern Italy and Sicily, which they would soon be wrenching away from the Muslims. In 1059, Nicholas also issued a groundbreaking papal bull called Inomine Domini, in the name of the Lord. Papal bulls are basically decrees, and they take their name from the first three or so words of the decree. Inomine Domini was in many ways the culmination of the reform ideas that had been swirling around religious circles for decades. It included restrictions on priests who were in concubinage, i.e. living with a lady friend, and it also banned simony, obviously. But many decisions were also shaped by Nicholas's personal experience and context. For example, there was a heavy focus on papal elections, for which the protocol was explicitly laid out. It was to be the cardinal bishops who elected popes. There was also a curtailing of the German king-slash-emperor's role in all this. After all, the last time they had used a German emperor to gain a new pope, he had just named the next five guys. That wasn't going to fly. So, under the new rules, per Inomine Domini, the German king still had the right to confirm papal elections, but this was, kind of oxymoronically, a privilege granted by the Pope. And there was one other decision that was definitely going to rub some people the wrong way. The banning of lay investiture. The ritual of investing was tied to the appointment of bishops. And it makes sense that this reform movement sought to control that process instead of leaving it in the hands of local rulers. It was tied up in many of the same sorts of behaviors that had put simony on the shit list. However, it was this detail in particular that placed the German king and pope into conflict. In all honesty, the conflict was over supremacy. Though it's called the investiture controversy, that was just the battleground where the fight took place. The reform movement, as interpreted by Nicholas, wanted basically the Cluny model, an independent church operating under its own terms. And because of the weak position of the emperor at the time, they had cut him out of this new schema. Like I said, though, it didn't have to be this way. Perhaps a stronger emperor would have inserted himself into the new reformed church. A Latin Christian version of what Alexios Komnenos was doing in the East, the Epistomonarches. Speaking of the Byzantine Romans, yeah, obviously none of this was to their liking. Not only did they still view the Pope as just another patriarch, but they hated the Normans. And what was all this excommunication of the ecumenical patriarch about? Seriously, what the fuck, guys? But of course, all this religious stuff mattered less and less as the Eastern Romans started to come into conflict with the Seljuks in Anatolia. Still, it was clear that Latin Christendom 
was not even playing the same game as Constantinople. There was no way the Pope was ever going to accept subordination to the Byzantine Emperor if he wasn't even going to put up with the German Emperor. Because, yeah, it was fast becoming clear that the Gregorian reform movement was not going to be taking any shit from the German Emperor. What had started as a partnership between Pippin the Short and Pope Stephen II was fast evolving into a messy divorce. By the time the German king, Henry IV, reached adulthood and took control of his kingdom, Nicholas was dead, and he'd been replaced by Pope Alexander II, the first pope to be elected along the lines of Nicholas's instructions. Alexander and Henry also had their share of disagreements. In 1068, Henry tried to divorce his wife, Bertha, but he was informed that doing so would lead to the Pope's refusal to crown him as emperor, so the marriage stuck. And in 1071, Henry also attempted to invest the new bishop of Milan, and he was duly informed that he could no longer do that. This time, Henry backed down. He was engaged in a brutal conflict with the Saxons, and he didn't have the backing to confront the Pope directly. Pope Alexander II died in 1073, and he was replaced by Ildebrando, now Pope Gregory VII. This guy had his nose in everything. Ildebrando was born around 1015. We don't know exactly when. It seems he was from modest origins, and he was from Italy. He later referenced an education in Rome. And there were many claims about his parentage, but as this guy was going to grow up to be one of the most controversial figures of the age, it's hard to tease out the truth from the slander and the mythologizing. But we've got his corpse. Um, that's a weird line. But yeah, we've got the old guy's corpse. As I mentioned in episode 1.13, he died and was buried in Salerno, Italy. To quote from H.E.G. Crawley's Pope Gregory VII, 1073-1085, to Friends and foes alike alluded to his modest origins, especially on his father's side. But his childhood does not seem to have been a deprived one. Medical examination of his skeletal remains has indicated that, in his childhood, he was well-nourished with ample protein and vitamin D. In his prime, he stood some 163 centimeters, 5 feet 4 and a quarter inches, tall. He was strongly built and well-exercised. He was used to riding a horse. His skull suggests alpine Mediterranean, not Lombard or Germanic descent. End quote. Yeah, Ildebrando, getting good exercise, following a Mediterranean diet, hanging out in the sun, riding horses. Good deal, man, good deal. Ildebrando first starts to pop up in our records around the 1040s. As I mentioned, he was a follower of Pope Gregory VI, who was, as we just discussed, accused of simony and forced to abdicate. Ildebrando followed his boss into exile, and that eventually ended up at Cluny. He was possibly a monk there or somewhere else, though even if he wasn't a monk there, he definitely had close ties to the abbey. In 1049, he returned to Rome to work under Pope Leo IX, who'd been appointed by the German emperor, Henry III. From this moment on, Ildebrando was very plugged into papal shenanigans. He hung out with Leo, then later with Nicholas, and he was instrumental in getting Alexander elected. So it made total sense that in 1073, this lifelong advocate for the reform movement was elected Pope himself. He took the name Gregory VII, in honor of Gregory the Great, and also his former boss and mentor, Gregory VI. And from 1073 until his death in 1085, this guy got up to a lot of stuff. During the first few years of his rule, he was primarily concerned with the Normans. He tried to work out an alliance with the Byzantine Roman Empire against Robert Giscard, 
He called for the Christians of the West to travel south through Italy, putting the Normans in their place, and then east to Anatolia to fight off the Seljuk Turks. The alliance with the Byzantines was also important for religious reasons. Gregory had lived through the Great Schism of 1054, and he knew that there were fundamental differences in how the two churches saw things, but he was open to finding a path forward. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see that was going to be tough. Papal supremacy was at the heart of the reform movement espoused by guys like Gregory, and that was never going to fly for many reasons in the East. Still, Gregory tried. And failed. His military expedition led nowhere. One of Gregory's key advisors, Otto of Châtillon, the future Pope Urban II, definitely made note of it, though. Gregory was forced to abandon pipe dreams of armed pilgrimages to the East when, in 1075, he fell out with the German king. As we saw in the opening, he was able to force Henry IV to back down. But only temporarily. By 1077, the two were at odds again, and Henry IV was excommunicated. Again. In total, he would be excommunicated three times. Henry was a huge threat, and to ensure the survival of the new reform papacy, Gregory was forced to turn to his former foe, Robert Giscar. The popes just keep coming back to the Normans. They really can't quit him. We already heard this story play out in episode 1.13, but to give a quick recap, Gregory and the Normans teamed up. Gregory needed support against the German king, the Normans needed some sort of legitimacy for their invasion of the Byzantine Roman Empire. Gregory actually excommunicated first the usurper Nikiforos Vataniatis and then the sequel usurper Alexios Komnenos. Eventually, Henry IV finally came down to Rome and named his own antipope, Clement III. Notice that his dad had named Clement II. Anyway, he got himself crowned Emperor of the Romans by Clement III. Yay! Then he ran away when the Giscard came back from the Balkans. The Normans brutally sacked Rome. The Romans were like, hey, what the fuck, to Gregory. Gregory was like, yeah, I gotta get out of here. He went to Salerno with the Normans, and then he died. The end. To quote H.E.J. Crawley once more, it is commonly stated that, from the time of his becoming Pope, he acted upon a number of sharply defined and clearly formulated principles of papal action. Such a view is misleading. The presuppositions upon which he acted were subject to change and adaptation. In one conviction, he never wavered. Since the Pope was the vicar of St. Peter, the authority that Christ had conferred upon St. Peter in the New Testament had devolved upon him absolutely and by hereditary and inalienable right. As a consequence, he had functions and duties that he must needs perform. Upon this, he was adamant. Upon all else, he was surprisingly flexible, feeling his way and therefore perplexing both rigorous collaborators and cautious and steady-minded ones. His zeal, moral force, and religious conviction, however, ensured that he should retain to a remarkable degree the loyalty and service of a wide variety of men and women. End quote. Gregory ensured the survival of the reform papacy, but he also burned a lot of bridges. The Pope was now cut off from both the German Emperor and the Greek Emperor. Would he be able to stand on his own? Gregory's immediate successor, Pope Victor III, died literally three months after being elected, so we're not even going to bother with him. Because the next guy, well, the next guy is important. Pope Urban II. It now fell to Urban to reestablish the ties that Gregory had severed. In many ways, he followed in Gregory's footsteps, but he also navigated the pitfalls with a touch more subtlety. Pope Urban was born Odo to an aristocratic family in Châtillon-sur-Marne in northeastern France. 
He was later prior of the Abbey of Cluny, and he worked directly under Pope Gregory, even serving as a papal legate to the imperial court in Germany in 1084. When he became pope, Rome had been lost to the German emperor, Henry IV, and it was his anti-pope, Clement III, sitting in the Lateran. Urban spent most of the early years of his papacy traveling around Italy and France, frequently holding councils and synods and basically operating as a mobile pope. He was very much in the campaign trail, trying to garner enough support to retake his rightful position in Rome. Not too dissimilar from the position that Pope Nicholas II had found himself in when he'd made the alliance with the Normans. This is why, when delegates from Alexios Komnenos found him, Urban wasn't kicking back in Rome. He was in northern Italy, at Piacenza, hiding out from the wrath of the German emperor, and why the Council of Claremont was held in Claremont, not Rome. Again, much like Nicholas, Urban's decisions were framed by currents of thought, the reform movement which sought papal universality and supremacy, for example, but also by the context. At the beginning of the Middle Ages, the Pope was just another patriarch, appointed by the Roman Emperor in Constantinople. In the 8th and 9th century, the Pope had become at least the equal of the new Frankish Roman Emperor. And now, in the 11th century, the Pope was rising once more to become the true universal ruler. Short term, Urban needed to get his hands on an army loyal to him so he could force the German Emperor to back off and permanently take his rightful place in Rome. But long term, papal claims to universality would definitely benefit from some sort of protection over Jerusalem. Both the German and Byzantine Roman emperors had traditionally bolstered their claims to universality with claims to some sort of protection over the Holy Land. Protection over Eastern Christians had long been an element of concepts such as universality. That's why Byzantine Romans cared so much about protecting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and why Einhard had portrayed Charlemagne as receiving some vague form of dominion in Jerusalem. Urban was following this tradition when he set Jerusalem as the end goal of the First Crusade. There was one hitch in this plan though, an issue I've been skirting around, but which we'll be dealing with next time. What's the Pope doing directing armies? Isn't murder a sin? Shouldn't good Christians be turning the other cheek? Hadn't Jesus said, them that take the sword shall perish by the sword? Well, it turns out a good deal of Christian theologians during the first millennium had dedicated some thought to this conundrum. And by 1095, when Urban made his little speech at Claremont, it was perfectly logical for a call to arms that would lead to countless massacres to be met with cries of, Deus lo vult. God wills it. Hello all, um, unconnected to the episode, I wanted to pay my respects to the British historian Susan Reynolds, who passed away on July 29th, 2021. By coincidence, in our bibliography episode, which was released just a few days before she passed, I made mention to Reynolds when criticizing my unclear use of the term medieval feudalism. I was able to just name drop her and expect at least some of you to recognize her, because Susan Reynolds is one of the biggest figures in medieval studies. And rightfully so. She's most famous for breaking down pre-existing ideas about feudalism 
and introducing a much more nuanced view of medieval political structures in Western Europe. Her 1994 book, Thieves and Vassals, The Medieval Evidence Reinterpreted, was a major turning point and marks a clear before and after for the field. She will be missed. <laughs>